Bikini and Rich Linkoff. You know what time it is. Welcome to Legal Face Off. Two lawyers trading jab for jab. So hit them up with any questions you have. Welcome into Legal Face Off. It's the final episode of July here on WGN, WGNRadio.com. All the legal issues will be tackled by our Eagles, Rich Linkoff and Tina Martini. How's it going? Good. How are you guys doing? I've got a new prop in the corner, guys. I don't know if you noticed, but uh, you know I'm a huge Scarface fan, so someone got me this. Nice. Oh, that's fancy. Wow. For those of you Scarface, Scarface fans, you'll recognize the world is your statue from the movie. And also, I've got a brand new microphone for the podcast. Wow. Recommended by our very own Ben Anderson. This is a, a Yeti. I guess it's the yeah, Cadillac nice. of mics. So you should be hearing me even louder now than ever. Perfect. Get up nice and close so you can yell even louder. I miss you in Vegas, by the way, too, but we'll get to that maybe later in the show. Uh, Plenty to get to per usual. COVID-19, we're still on Zoom. We'll talk about Florida felons, elections, puppy mills, and employment issues in COVID-19. And to kick things off, Paul Smith joins us from the Campaign Legal Center. He's the VP of Litigation and Strategy. Paul, welcome. Thank you. Paul, interesting. Thanks so much. Uh, Interesting decision last week. The Supreme Court ruled that, uh, well, it declined to overturn a federal appeal court decision that blocks some Florida felons eligibility to participate in elections. Uh, This means that as many as 1.4 million people in Florida, which is obviously a key battleground state for the upcoming election, will not be able to vote in that election. Uh, you said that you were deeply disappointed with that order. Please explain why. Well, so you have to go back to 2018 when the voters of Florida overwhelmingly voted to stop disenfranchising people just because they were previously imprisoned. Uh, it was like a 70-30 vote. Uh, and then what happened is it got interpreted this new right to vote as, as saying, first, you have to pay every fine and fee and cost uh, and restitution that the state can think of to impose on you when you're going through the criminal justice system. And the problem is lots of those people can't pay that, but they don't have jobs, they're, they, they're, they can't pay it. Uh, and so um, we, we soon we said, look, you can't keep somebody from voting when the only barrier is that they're poor. That's, that's just not right. And the district court, the trial court, we had a big trial on Zoom just like this. Uh, it's held that uh, it is unconstitutional to bar these people from voting because they're poor. Some of the fees you call the poll tax. And one of the real problems is the state can't even tell you what you owe. So we have a whole remedy to get hundreds of thousands of people voting in November in Florida. The Court of Appeals said, nah, we'll just shut all that down while we consider the merits. Uh, we have an appeal. In the meantime, nobody should do anything. No registering, no, no voting by people in the meantime. And so that's what we asked the Supreme Court to fix, but they didn't. So I was disappointed. So, Paul, Florida Republican Governor Ron DeSantis asserts, as you mentioned, that felons have to pay fines, fees, and restitution before they're eligible to vote. What is wrong with that sentiment? You mentioned it a couple of seconds ago, but why don't we explore that in a little bit more detail? Sure. Well, there's there's a couple of different things. The, the fees, which is like you pay the salary of your probation officer and that sort of thing, the district court said that's just a tax. And we've had a principle in this country since the 1960s. You can't uh, make voting dependent on paying a tax. That's called a poll tax. It was used for decades to keep black people from voting in the South. So he said those things are just, you can't link those to voting. Now, fines, the actual criminal penalty of a fine or restitution, the court said, that's not a tax. 
And the truth is you can make people pay those before you let them vote if they were previously, uh, you know, in prison with a felony. But uh, you can't do that when they're too poor. Uh, that if somebody's only barrier to voting is their poverty and their, therefore their inability to pay a fine, that's just not right. There are lots of things that are so important in this country we don't uh, exclude people from it based on poverty. And then the other problem is if you went to the state of Florida and said, I'm Joe Smith, tell me how much I owe so I can pay it and safely vote. They can't tell you. They have no idea. The system is such a mess. So for all of those reasons, this system is keeping thousands and thousands of people from voting, we think, unconstitutionally. Um, Paul, you've argued 21 cases. Is that the right number before the Supreme Court? Yeah, we keep track of those things. Uh, incredibly impressive. Um, were you surprised, given the current makeup of the court, including uh, President Trump's two most recent uh, nominees, both of whom apparently are very conservative, although as we've covered extensively over the last couple of shows, uh, their conservative uh, votes are not necessarily guaranteed. But were you surprised, given uh, the current makeup of the court? No, we were asking for them to do something pretty extraordinary, which was lift the uh, this stay of the of the district court's order while the case was still in the court of appeals, it was uh, so important enough that we thought it was worth a try, and we did get three votes and a nice dissent from Justice Sotomayor. But I, I wouldn't say we were anybody was surprised that we didn't uh, get it overturned by the majority of the justices, who are pretty conservative on these kinds of issues. And Paul, speaking of Justice Sotomayor, um, she said that this continues a trend. Uh, recently of condoning disenfranchisement. What is that trend? Briefly, of course, what is that trend that the justice was referring to in her decision? The court has got a, had a series of decisions in the last few months involving things like uh, whether you can vote absentee in Texas if you're under 65, uh, adjusting of the, uh, the deadlines for absentee voting in the Wisconsin primary, uh, and a couple of others where they seem to be um, coming in uh, on the side of upholding rules which are keeping people from voting as easily as they should. In, in a year when voting is really tough, uh, when we're moving toward voting by mail and the rules don't work very well, the court has not really been very enthusiastic about the lower courts uh, imposing new rules, changing the rules to help people vote. They've been kind of uh, saying, maybe we should just leave the rules alone and let the states decide what they want to do and the courts keep themselves out of it. That seems to be where their head is at on some of these election issues in this year of uh, pandemic. So, Paul, do you think that the 11th Circuit is going to decide this case before voter registration for the general election ends in Florida? I would certainly hope so. It's very accelerated. We're going to have an oral argument, uh, presumably over Zoom, on August 18th. Uh, And so if they rule quickly, there would be time for people to start registering in in September, October. they may not. The courts have a lot of power about how quickly they rule. But they, since they accelerated the briefing so so extraordinarily fast, I'm, I'm assuming they intend to do that. Paul, it's also incredibly uh, interesting and, and relevant in light of what President Trump said as recently as recently on Sunday when uh, Chris Wallace asked him if he will abide by the results of the November general election. Notably, he said the same thing he said back four years ago, almost four years ago, when asked the same question by the same interviewer, he said, well, I can't commit to saying yes to that. Uh, we'll see what happens. And everything that you're fighting for, I think, is directly relevant because what's to stop Trump from saying, um, you know, if this is overturned, that look, you know, felons vote in the election. That obviously makes it unfair. I'm not relinquishing the White House. 
Right. Well, he's going to look for something. His main target seems to be voting by mail, which he thinks is uh, inherently fraudulent, uh, even though all the evidence shows that it doesn't cause those kinds of problems at all. He's kind of leaving himself an out if he loses to say, to say I, I didn't lose. Uh, and it's, it's a little scary, particularly since there's this prospect that with so much voting by mail this year, it might take us a week or two to figure out who won the election. And you can imagine how stressful that would be for a polarized country like the one we have. I mean, today. ultimately, as a Supreme Court veteran, do you think that even gets any votes? I mean, even considering how conservative the court is, do you think he gets, you know, two justices to vote in his favor that the election was fraudulent? I mean, who knows, right? But I, I bet you would get, you know, Kennedy and Alito on, on your side if you made that argument. I, mean, I, I have to... I have to be confident that the Supreme Not Kennedy, Court, I mean, I'm sorry, Thomas and Alito, I should say. Yeah, I think if the Supreme Court was asked, uh, in the absence of any evidence, to do something to overturn the election uh, based on crazy claims of fraud, that they wouldn't do that. They, they're, they're not going to be uh, in his pocket that, in, on a case like that. I really don't, you know, I, I, in many ways, it, uh, we may well depend on the court to resolve this, but I would think they would resolve it correctly if there really is no serious evidence of fraud, and, and there won't be. Fraud is not the problem in our election system. We have lots of other problems in our election system, but that's not the one. That's Paul Smith, VP of Litigation and Strategy, the Campaign Legal Center. To learn more, campaignlegal.org. Thank you, Paul. Thank you very much. Rich Lenkoff is an attorney with Bryce Downey and Lenkoff. Rich is consistently recognized by clients like United Airlines, McDonald's, Macy's, Dollar Tree, and the Chicago Bears for his outstanding litigation results. In 2015, Target named him their top outside litigation attorney in the country. Rich has received a number of industry accolades, including Illinois Super Lawyer from 2015 through 2019 and Leading Lawyer from 2012 through 2020. Designations given to less than 5% of Illinois attorneys. Rich is also an active member of his community, including serving on organizations like the Advisory Board of Legal Prep Charter Academy and the Board of Visitors for the Northern Illinois University College of Law. In addition to his full-time practice, Rich is a prolific producer with credits including Elvis Presley's Heartbreak Hotel, 85, the greatest team in football history, starring Barack Obama, Bill Murray, and the coach, Mike Ditka. Renegades, a live show in Las Vegas starring Terrell Owens, Jose Canseco, and Jim McMahon. In addition to co-hosting Legal Face-Off since 2013, Rich is the legal analyst for The John Williams Show on WGN Radio. Bryce Downey and Lenkoff is a full-service litigation firm practicing general liability, workers' compensation, professional malpractice, business transactions, and intellectual property, among other practice areas. For more information about Rich and Bryce Downey and Lenkoff, please visit BDLfirm.com. That's BDLfirm.com. You can follow the show on Twitter. You can like us on Facebook. And after you listen, please rate, review. After you listen to the show, wherever you consume your podcast, it is Legal Face Off. Joining us now is Mark Ayers, who is the Illinois State Director of the Humane Society of the U.S. And Mark's joining us, of course, to talk about the legal loophole in the puppy mill ordinance. Mark, welcome. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's good to be here. Wait, ironically, was that a dog we just heard in the background, Mark? There, I have a dog barking, yes, so you might hear from time to time. That's the perfect. timing of that is so great. <laughs> yeah, it was impeccable timing. She wants so to be Mark, on camera, too. So, Mark, um, the story begins back in 2014 when the city of Chicago originally passed its puppy mill ordinance. What led to the passage of that original ordinance, and what exactly does it cover? 
So in, yeah, in 2014, uh, Chicago became, I think, the 40th or maybe the 50th city in the whole country to pass what they call a humane pet store ordinance. And that just simply means that stores can only offer up animals for adoption that come from shelters or rescues or animal control. And um, in Chicago, that vote passed 49 to one. It was almost unanimous. And then it went into effect in 2015. And at the time of its passage, uh, largely led by folks like the Puppy Mill Project, Steve Dale, um, former uh, clerk, Susana Mendoza, was behind this initiative. Now she's the Illinois Comptroller. Um, but it was 49 to one. And there were over a dozen stores, I wanna say at the time of its passage, and when it went into effect, almost all of them said, we don't want to comply with this ordinance. It's just too onerous. There's no money to be made. And so they just closed. And there were three that remained open and the three remain open today. And those three began exploiting a very small but uh, important loophole in the existing ordinance. And that's what we're fixing hopefully tomorrow during the full city council. So how are they getting around the uh, ordinance so it, it's actually quite simple. You know, when this went into effect in, in 2015, the language that was used to define animal rescue organization was kind of a generic definition to just make sure that if you're a 501c nonprofit, you have the nonprofit status and the IRS number, and that was it. And so that's literally what the store said. They go, well, if I can only sell animals that come from a C3, then I'll just set up a C3. And that's quite literally what they did. And so they set up a C3 nonprofit uh, out of state. One was in Missouri, a summer in Iowa. And, and so they began uh, selling dogs from the mills, uh, sourcing them to the rescue. The rescue then sold to the three Chicago stores. And so what they were doing was not very complicated. It was actually quite simple on paper. And they're just exchanging payment from a breeder or a broker to the, the non-for-profit entity, which then sold to the Chicago store. And the, the Chicago Tribune actually spent several days in the field documenting this. It did a couple devastating exposés on where these animals were coming from. Of course, the stores denied it, um, but the evidence is there uh, in black and white for everyone to see. So Mark, what will tomorrow's ordinance, uh, what will it do to fix that loophole? Really, it just brings Chicago's language up to par with what we've been passing for the last year, year and a half. It just further expands the animal rescue definition to include any entity that does not sell uh, to a breeder or broker or exchange payment from a breeder or broker or is even housed on the premise of a breeder or broker. So it, the definitions are further expanded. It's a lot more clear. It's a lot more airtight. And I think what Chicago will soon have after tomorrow's vote, hopefully, is what, we, again, we've been passing in Illinois and across the country in over 355 cities and now three states. So, Mark, clearly the intention of the ordinance is to stop the puppy mills and to stop the um, pet, pet stores that are benefiting from the sale of puppies from puppy mills. But there's also a concern that commercially bred puppies that get sold to pet stores are also going to fall within the purview of the ordinance. And do you care to comment on that as, as well as, you know, just as a general matter, has, do you think that this ordinance meaningfully increases the number of adoptions from 
shelters and from adoption organizations? Yeah, and, and that's a good question. And hopefully the, the impact of this ordinance is to finally give Chicago what they thought they had back in 2014. That's all it really is doing. But back to your other question, you know, this whole concept is, is devised in a way so that one of two things happens. One, hopefully people will go to an actual shelter or rescue and save an animal's life. You know, that's what we want to see happen. But for some reason, if someone can't find what they're looking for in a shelter, what we hope happens is, and what we've seen happen with these ordinances, people then go directly to a responsible breeder. They meet them face-to-face, -face, they tour the facility, they meet the mother dog, they inspect the conditions, and, and they find an animal that way. They make sure that the dog's the right fit for them, but they're the right fit for the dog. It's a two-way conversation. And that's what we think these ordinances can do. And that's what we hope happens uh, after Wednesday's vote. Joining us now on the Legal Face of Zoom to talk something that he knows a lot about is Alderman Brian Hopkins, Second Ward Alderman, City of Chicago. Alderman, welcome. Thank you. Appreciate you uh, having me on. Alderman, you've talked about how inhumane, how offensive, how um, abhorrent, I think, is one of the words you use these puppy mills are. Um, describe for our listeners what goes on in these puppy mills. And also, if you can, tell us why it's taken so long to fix this uh, loophole that um, you tried to fix back in 2014. Well, I'll answer the second question first. The reason it's so difficult is because this is a very lucrative industry. Uh, it's a highly profitable industry, especially when you don't provide the animals with the level of care that a pet would expect to receive. And that's sort of the answer to the first question. Um, people who own pets know, you know, it's, it's not cheap and it isn't easy. It's time consuming and you spend a lot of money caring for your pets and making sure your pets are well cared for and happy. The veterinarian bills, food, toys, uh, you know, a doggy daycare when you go on vacation, all of that. So these uh, animals that are bred intentionally for resale command a very high price tag. So to the extent that these puppy mills can reduce the cost of caring for these animals, it increases their profit margin when they sell these puppies for thousands and thousands of dollars. And really, the person doing most of the work is the female dog who is uh, producing these litters. And one of the um, shorthand methods that I've used to explain to people uh, the abhorrent conditions in the puppy mills that pet owners really understand without having to elaborate or show them, you know, graphic pictures. These dogs don't have names. These dogs don't have names. They're livestock, right? If you go to a, you know, a pig farm where they're, they're producing bacon and pork and you see a thousand pigs in the field, you know, no farmer bothered to name all those pigs, Porky one, Porky two, Porky three. They're just agricultural commodities. They're not loved. They're not cared for. They're not bonded with. They're simply producing the same way that anything else in the agricultural industry would, which is fine. I'm not a, a vegetarian, so I eat meat. You know, I, I understand the agricultural industry, but pets are household members. They're, they're members of our family. That's how they're treated. So when a pet lover, when an animal lover finds out that the origin of these puppies is not a loving home, not a hobby breeder, not someone who ever cared for the animals, they're horrified to learn that their money their financial contribution that they paid to the store to buy this animal is going to support this cruel, inhumane industry. That's deceptive, that's wrong, and it needs to stop. And I can think of no other way to do it than the ordinance before us. Uh, I can't shut down the puppy mills. I don't have jurisdiction in Iowa, 
you know, I'm a Chicago alderman. I, I can't tell Missouri what to do. And thank God we have people like the attorney general in Iowa who are, are helping. But I'm doing what I can on my end, which is shutting off the retail uh, sale of these animals in an area where there's great demand. I live in Lincoln Park. I walk out every day and I see people walking dogs that I know came from a puppy mill. And, you know, I, I don't uh, confront them because, uh, you know, it's not my place to upset someone who's just out for a walk. But I know the source of the profits that is supporting this industry, it's my neighbors. And I also know if my neighbors knew what was really happening, they wouldn't engage in this. So this is public education, it's visibility, it's transparency, and people will make informed choices once they know the truth. And that'll put an end to this industry once and for all. I was just going to ask one more question of the alderman real quick. Um, alderman, there are some who claim that if the pet stores end up going out of business because of this ordinance, that it's actually cutting off a source of commercially bred puppies that are legitimately bred. Um, do you care to comment on the criticism that by doing that, then it drives people right back to the puppy mills to purchase puppies? I think that's a, a stretch of logic to suggest that would happen. Uh, you know, it's possible that some of the pet stores may go out of business. Uh, I don't want that to happen, actually. I, I would prefer, um, you know, we're struggling with uh, small retail environments, mom and pop stores. You know, I, I have Armitage and Racine in part of my ward, and there's a lot of vacant storefronts. I don't want to contribute to that and have another small retail outlet shut down. But I see no reason why they can't shift their model and provide supplies for pet owners. Uh, there's all sorts of other ways to make a profit in the retail pet industry other than selling the animals themselves. And it, I mean, it may be a challenge for them to, to survive, but uh, retails are, you know, retailers are, are challenged all the time to adapt to changing market conditions. Just, you know, how many times have you seen an Amazon truck go down your street today alone? So, you know, the, the retail environment is dynamic, it changes, it's competitive. And for every pet store now, and there's really only a handful of them that are selling puppy mill puppies, my message to them is good luck making the necessary change. I sincerely wish you well. I hope you can find a way to take care of your customer base to sell them supplies and food and veterinary care, if, if possible, um, you know, classes, obedience school, agility training, field trips. There's hundreds of ways. Pet owners want to spend their money. It's, it's important to them. As I said, they want to care for their pets. They're willing to spend money on, on uh, caring for that, you know, four-legged member of the family. So if you're a retailer, find a way. Find a way to serve them. Find a way to stay in business. I really hope you can. That's Brian Hawkins, second word alderman, city of Chicago. Also joining us, Mark Ayers from the Advanced Society of the United States. Thank you both for your time. Thank you. Thank you. We all know the legal world is complex and high pressured. There's no room for error. That's why judges and attorneys across Chicagoland have trusted the expert court reporters at McCorkle Litigation Services since 1948. McCorkle Litigation Services has accurately recorded every word from thousands of legal proceedings. McCorkle Litigation Services provides the legal community with peace of mind, transcribing testimony and depositions that can be used reliably by jurors, judges, and attorneys. For all of your legal support needs, contact McCorkle Litigation Services online at McCorkleLitigation.com. 
Our final guest before the legal grab bag, legal face-off here on WGN, is the Stores Downey, capital member of Bryce Downey and Lenkoff. So we have two-thirds of the firm, two-thirds of the masthead, I guess, right here. Stores, welcome to the show. Hey, I really appreciate being here. Thank you. Who is watching the store? That's the question. Who's taking care of things while we're, we're taping? But Stores, uh, we, we, we welcome you back to the show. And uh, we want to run through sort of a speed round of employment issues because you have spoken to a lot of organizations, done a lot of writing, and actually been on WGN before talking about all of the myriad of employment issues that employers and employees face when dealing with COVID. So we wanted to sort of run through a speed round version of them. Um, so right off the bat, uh, can an employer take an employee's temperature to determine if they have COVID, uh, COVID-19, and can they ask the employee to get tested for antibodies? As to the first question, the answer is definitely yes. Whether it be an employer or a, a premises, uh, public premises, the answer is yes. You can test to determine whether someone is uh, positive or not for COVID-19. As to the second question, a definitive no at this point. Uh, the uh, EEOC in particular, which addresses several of these topics before they get to the courts, has weighed in on this. OSHA has to a degree as well, and the answer is no. You can't determine whether someone has already contracted the virus previously. So, stores, can employers legally disclose the identity of any of their employees that have tested positive for COVID-19? Tina, that is an ongoing issue, uh, ongoing debate, but up till now, the answer is no, you cannot. The privacy of the individual extends to their possible COVID uh, positive test result. Uh, previously, the courts, the EEOC, other state fed uh, local agencies and courts have weighed in and said that is, the that is a type of privacy violation. However, we have represented companies where they have been confronted with that exact question, what do they do? Can they, if they can't identify, hey, Charlie down the, the line there tested positive, what can they say? What can they tell their employees? Well, the way we have counseled uh, employers, companies is, while you may not be able to say so-and-so tested positive, you might be able to say so-and-so, excuse me, such and such a department had one or more employees test positive. But if you identify individuals, you don't do run a risk of HIPAA violations, ADA violations, and you can add on from there. I would imagine you have to be pretty careful though in identifying like a department, for example, if you do it, like if for example, it's a department of one or two and it's pretty clear who the person is, even though you're not disclosing a name, I would imagine you've gotta be very careful about that as well. Yeah, if you've got a billing department and there are three people in it, two know they're healthy and that you say someone in the billing department uh, tested positive, that could be problematic. Fortunately, in one instance where we had a uh, client that had about seven or eight people that worked at an assembly line, the employee who tested positive said, I want my colleagues to know about this so they can take appropriate steps. And there's nothing wrong with an employer asking an employee, would you be willing to voluntarily divulge or allow us to divulge that? Because the bigger issue is others contracting the virus as well. 
Stores, we've seen, obviously, in the last few weeks, couple of months, uh, mass gatherings among people uh, all over the world, many of whom are protesting against various social issues. Um, what right does an employer have to tell an employee, uh, you could exercise your, you know, First Amendment rights, but we don't want you coming to work or we don't even want you participating in such mass, mass gatherings? Okay, as to, I'll take the, the latter question first, and that is, can you tell your employee, I don't want you uh, going out on that protest. I don't want you going to that concert. Even if it's within uh, the, the realm of uh, social distancing, masks, etc., you cannot prohibit. Constitutionally, legally, you cannot prohibit an employee from uh, attending mass gatherings, even if there is a risk of COVID-19. Uh, can you, however, uh, insist that they be tested when they come back? Absolutely. Again, back to the first question. Can you test someone when they come back from mass gathering? The answer to that is certainly yes. What about asking employees if they actually attended a mass gathering? Can employers ask that question? And can they also ask if they're able to do that? Can they ask if they wore masks and were practicing social distancing? You can certainly ask that. Can that be a basis to terminate them or refuse to allow them to come back to work? The answer to that is no. Um, as it rolls into, however, if someone came back from one of the hotspot states, which is growing by the, uh, the day, I think it's up to about 15 or 18 for Illinois' purposes now, uh, you can require someone to quarantine under that circumstance, work remotely. So speaking of terminating employee stores, what if an employee says that they don't want to come back to work because of some, some issue with COVID? Uh, can the employer terminate that employee? And it's going to depend on the particular circumstance involved. If someone tests positive, you can't, obviously you can't require them. You should not let them come back to work uh, if they're working in an office, a factory, et cetera, if they've tested positive. If they uh, haven't tested positive and their reason for not coming back to work is, I'm afraid that I might contract the virus, at least as the law stands now, you could terminate them or discipline them, discipline them, lay them off, furlough them. So you're within your rights as a company to require someone to come back to work. And if they decline, say, sorry, you're out of luck. If someone refuses to follow your protocol, wearing a mask, social distancing, uh, undergoing temperature reads, uh, even in indicating if you have gone to one of these hotbed states, those could be a basis to terminate the employee if they refuse those types of questions. So stores, with regard to the Chicago emergency travel order, which requires the mandatory 14-day quarantine period. What are some of the issues that are facing employers and employees that our listeners should be mindful of? Well, the first one, and I think there is before, can you ask uh, where someone went? Yes, you can at this point. Um, even though it, it normally would be deemed a privacy-type violation or issue, during the pandemic as we're facing it, to be you should be allowed to ask them, Did what state did you go to? And by the way, in advance, what state are you planning to go to? Um, so that appropriate precautions and measures can 
uh, be undertaken. Specific to Chicago, Chicago requires that anyone, whether you're employed or not, that goes to one of the hot states, Texas, California, Georgia, etc., is required to quarantine for 14 days at home. If you're an employee and you're able to work remote, there's really no change. There's really no change. This means you can't come into the office or the factory for 14 days. But what about in the instance where you uh, work in a factory and you don't have the luxury of, of working remote? If you go down to Texas, the employer has the uh, can certainly require and must require in Chicago that you quarantine. And if that job can't be held open, if you didn't test positive for COVID-19, you can let that employee go. George, we've covered, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I, that's fine. We've covered on our show the new Illinois workers' compensation law, which is the most, really the most liberal one in the country, extending um, rights to recover for employees who allege that they contracted COVID at work. They get the benefit of a rebuttable presumption that their virus was contracted at work. But uh, due to some recent lawsuits, especially the first one being in Illinois against Walmart, there's lots of employers who are also worried that they will face civil liability uh, from employees who allege that they got workers' comp or they got uh, the virus from work. How, how can that be? Why would there be any civil liability for an employer if workers' compensation uh, is supposed to be the exclusive remedy for employees who get sick at work? Well, there are a few exceptions, Rich, to the uh, exclusive remedy, meaning that your only recourse, if you have an injury or an illness as a result of work, your only recourse is work comp. One of the exceptions would be an intentional tort. They're rare in Illinois, they're rare in most states, uh, but if the employee can show that the employer purposely exposed the employer excuse me, the employee to the virus in this case, to COVID-19, or acted in a willful and wanton manner, that might enable the employee, or in the case of the Walmart family of the deceased worker, to pursue their action in civil court. Now, the Walmart case in particular you've mentioned is subject right now to a motion to dismiss based so exclusively on that exclusive remedy doctrine you mentioned. Uh, that's something most attorneys had predicted would happen. Um, so the Walmart attorneys are going to, excuse me, the plaintiff attorney in the Walmart case will have to craft an argument that gets beyond simply negligence. Negligence is not a basis to sue an employer in a civil court. Another type of case we're starting to see, and Illinois is one of those states that had it, is a public nuisance type case. McDonald's was recently sued by, again, employees, by a number of their workers in which they alleged that McDonald's did not safely protect them from the virus, did not provide adequate safeguards for them. The judge in that case denied McDonald's initial motion to dismiss and said the case can continue on. We'll have to track that one. So the intentional tort case, the public nuisance case, and in all types of employment cases that have already always existed out there, discrimination, Americans with Disabilities Act, FMLA protections, those are ways that employees can still sue their employer directly outside the comp arena. 
sort of finally on legal face of most importantly, is there any liability uh, from a biohazard perspective from what's going on in your background uh, in your office in terms of the stacks and stacks of papers that we see over your shoulder? I've often, I've offered, I've often wondered that when I've been in your office, but now that we have you on uh, the podcast, can you answer that crucial question for us? That's actually a screenshot. That's not the report, <laughs> so I think we're safe. Very good. How long does it take you to read all those papers? Is that like a month's worth of work? No, seriously. How long would it take you to go through that pile of your right shoulder? I won't tell you how many years those go back, but <laughs> that's a long time ago. All right. He dodged it twice, so we'll let him go. Sars Downey, capital member of Bryce Downey and Lincoln. Thank you, sir, for your time. Thank you. Appreciate it. You are listening to Christina Martini on Legal Faceoff. Tina is a partner at McDermott, Will & Emery and focuses her practice on domestic and international trademark and copyright law, as well as domain name, internet, social media, advertising, and unfair competition law. Tina has received numerous professional accolades, including an AV preeminent rating by Martindale Hubble and being selected for many years as one of America's leading intellectual property attorneys by various legal publications, including Chambers and Partners and World Trademark Review. Tina is also the recipient of the Anti-Defamation League's Women of Achievement Award and has been recognized by Crane's Chicago Business as one of Chicago's most influential minority lawyers. In addition to her full-time practice, Tina is an author, columnist, legal analyst, and podcast host, and she frequently shares her thought leadership with respect to current issues and trends impacting both the legal and business landscapes through various media outlets. McDermott, Will & Emery is an integrated international law firm. McDermott has an uncompromising commitment to legal excellence, extraordinary client service, and a high-performance culture. It is committed to helping clients achieve stellar legal and business results today and well into the future. To contact Tina and to learn more about McDermott, Will & Emery, visit mwe.com. It is time for the legal grab bag on LFO. Thanks to Ben Anderson. Thanks to Emily and Gabby. And thanks to anybody who helped us over at Bryce Downey and Lankov. We're going to get Bryce on the next show, I heard, maybe, because we had Downey and we had Lankov on today. But uh, great show per usual for Rich and Tina and Sam. We appreciate you listening. And joining us now for the grab bag, Lauren Schwartz, who's the general counsel at Clever Bridge. Hi, Lauren. Hi, thanks for having me. And the second half of the tag team is Harry Tynowitz, a man who, Rich, believe it or not, got me into Chicago sports radio when he was a part of the Afternoon Saloon back wow. in the ESPN 1000. I worked with him for years at WJ Radio. One of my guys, Harry Tynowitz. Hey, Harry. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me. And, and Sam, I believe I can't be held legally responsible. <laughs> Harry is a, is, a, is a living Chicago sports legend, and I would listen to Fantasy Football Island religiously every week. And these were back in the day, Sam, before we had this fancy internet, before, you know, all the technology. I would literally fax in my fantasy football. Uh, fax. Fax him in after I would listen to Harry because he was the last word on all the scoops on fantasy football. So, I know, uh, and now fantasy football just means that we hope we get football. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that's a legend and return guest. So I guess now that the formalities are out of the way, we can talk about a lawyer shooting a judge's son, I guess. Why not? Yeah, not a great story, but we've all heard the news over the last couple of days in New Jersey where a lawyer um, was dressed up as a FedEx delivery person, went to a judge's home in New Brunswick, um, New Jersey, and he uh, shot the judge, the federal judge, a Hispanic federal judge. Her name is, um, uh, let's see, Judge Esther Santos. Salas. Judge Esther Salas. 
Uh, her son opened the door. Her son is 20 years old, just turned 20. And this lawyer um, shot the son, uh, killed him, and also shot the judge's husband, who is an attorney as well. So terrible story. Uh, it turns out that the attorney who did the shooting, we suspect, um, his body was found with a FedEx package nearby, and all, all signs point to him. He was found uh, in New York a couple hours away, and he has a history of some really strange things. Um, he had filed lawsuits alleging uh, gender discrimination um, uh, against men. Uh, he alleged that because women were not subject to the draft, that means that men were discriminated against. Um, he is, you know, been all over social media with some really wacky theories um, really, obviously, unfortunate situation, um, especially considering that most federal judges surprisingly don't have a lot of protection, uh, even though they're dealing with, you know, white collar criminals and, and a lot of gangs and, you know, a lot of high level cr uh, criminals. It's a little bit surprising that you could walk right up to a judge's off uh, a home and, uh, you know, commit this kind of crime. So obviously, Tina, terrible situation. We feel for uh, the judge's family. Yeah, it's just really reminded me of Judge Lefko, actually, as I was reading this story, and it just shot me back, and I'm sure it shot all of us back to when that terrible tragedy happened many years ago. And I think, you know, again, you know, God bless the federal judges and or any judges for that matter, because I think that there just seems to be increasing exposure in terms of their safety. And it has it had to do with a case she had on her docket, or at least that seems to be what is believed. I think that she had a case that this person felt very strongly about on her docket. And um, that may be a very, I mean, that, that may be an explanation, obviously not a very good one to be murdering a, a person's son and, and shooting the husband. Um, but that I think may be what he was, why he was targeting her was because of this case in particular. Now, Lauren, this uh, attorney, Roy Den Hollander, uh, had also filed a lawsuit alleging that um, ladies' nights promotions at bars and nightclubs was unconstitutional. You know, on this show, we've covered frequently the idea that lawyers <clears throat> are among the most, uh, you know, stressful occupations. Uh, high levels of drug use and alcoholism, and ones where you really do need to look out for signs of, um, you know, mental illness. And this person clearly, it looks like, was suffering from some sort of illness. Uh, what are your thoughts on that whole that whole concept? Yeah, I think it shows that there's no profession that is immune from mental illness. It's something that is pervasive in society and crosses every societal metric and every socioeconomic class. I mean, it is in a lot of ways the, the great equalizer in society. And I think this is a, a reminder that those of us in the legal profession do need to look out for each other and do need to watch out for signs that somebody's really struggling and understand that maybe somebody's sort of harebrained schemes or frivolous lawsuits or bizarre behavior is more than just something silly that we, that we all kind of scoff at and say, oh gosh, you know, look at that harebrained scheme. There, there were probably signs that there was something really wrong, you know, in his life that caused him to snap in this way. Yeah, Harry, inevitably in these kind of shootings, you hear the debate between whether there should be more control over access to firearms versus the need to uh, further scrutinize uh, mental 
disability and mental illness. And it seems like that often gets politicized because, you know, conservatives say that this is not a gun problem and liberals say uh, it is a gun problem and it's not so much a mental health issue. It seems like inevitably it's, you know, a combination of, of all of the above probably. Well, you know, I, it's certain jobs come with occupational hazards. And I would think being a judge, there are occupational hazards but having someone walk up to your house disguised as a delivery man and shooting your son, shooting your husband, and if she weren't in the basement, she probably would have been shot as well. It's it's horrifying. You know, it's just it's just horrifying. And every time you read about somebody walking into a church with a semi-automatic weapon and just opening fire, it's really scary. I know that the gun advocates have their side of the story, but um, it's just, you know, Stuff, stuff like this that makes you want to just kiss your kids every day for about 10 hours before they leave. Yeah, Harry, you're absolutely right. I mean, the occupational hazard of being a judge should be getting a paper cut, right? It right. shouldn't be literally putting your life on the line to serve your country, but that's, that's what they're doing. I mean, I was a federal law clerk for a few years for a judge, the chief judge of the Northern District of Indiana, and we would get letters and different things all the time that were threatening him, threatening other staff. And you start to almost become numb to it at a certain point. And it's very difficult to recognize which threats you need to take seriously and which ones you don't. And the U.S. Marshals are there and are available for federal judges. But, you know, many judges don't want to live their lives under sort of lock and key and don't want to, quite frankly, waste the financial or people or feel like they're wasting the financial or people resources on their protection when they feel like maybe it's not something that's that serious. But it just goes to show that it it can be very serious. The thing that really bugs me with the story also, guys, is that you know, clearly this alleged murderer had an issue with women and with powerful women with these crazy lawsuits he filed. And it bothers me, of course, that he was targeting, um, you know, a very prominent female uh, judge. I think she was the first Hispanic judge in the state of New Jersey. Uh, you know, thankfully, he didn't get to her, but clearly he was there, at least partially, you would imagine, because of his, you know, disgusting misogyny and hatred of, of, of women. I guess that's my cue to take it to topic number two now of seven on the legal grab. Not an easy transition. Not an easy transition. On that happy note. Right. Uh, Topic two, Tina. I just want to read what was written on the rundown. Oregon versus the feds. Yes. So we're going from one happy topic to another. So I'll keep this very simple because unfortunately, I think we've already seen this and we're going to see more of this. So the Oregon Attorney General, along with the ACLU, filed suit late last week, alleging that the federal government through Customs and Border Patrol, um, as well as the Department of Homeland Security and a couple of other federal agencies that were sent into Portland, alleging a a whole host of inappropriate activities designed to curb people's First Amendment rights, but also claiming that people are being seized and detained without probable cause during the series of protests that have been happening since Memorial Day weekend when George Floyd got killed. Um, I mean, there's there's a whole host of accounts of the types of things that have been happening high level. It's anywhere from tear gassing folks that claim to be peacefully protesting. These sorts of things have been done and, and the defense has been that it's protecting federal property as well as protecting the policemen and federal officials who 
have been um, the target of violent activity. Um, there have been people who have been detained. Um, sometimes they're being detained by people who are not in uniform and who, not, who don't have um, any sort of identification indicating that they are a federal officials or that they're there in their official capacity. People are being hit with what are called impact weapons. Um, and just by and large, it's just a terrible scene right now. And I'm sure we all have heard the news in the last couple of days that President Trump is planning on sending federal, um, sending the feds, so to speak, into Chicago as well to help us address the violence um, that has been happening in our city too. And so unfortunately, I think we're just going to be seeing more of this um, and probably more lawsuits being filed. Get it straight, Trump. Do you want to leave it to the states or not, right? I mean, uh, on the one hand, he's saying, let's leave this issue to the states. On the other hand, he's saying the feds are going to step in. And, you know, anyone who watches and listens to our podcast knows that I'm no apologist for Trump. But I will say that there is some attraction to the idea uh, when you see 50, 60 people being shot every weekend in Chicago that it's we're, we're not cutting it locally, uh, state-wise. We're just not dealing with this problem. Now, I don't think it's as simple as Trump makes it out to be that, oh, I'm going to step in and send the feds. But I do think we need additional resources uh, to fight this issue that we're having locally. And it's been going on for years, obviously. But, you know, when you see 60 people shot every weekend and an increasing amount of people dying who are young, uh, I don't know that some assistance from the federal government isn't the right way to go. Now, is it bringing in, uh, you know, unnamed uh, jackbooted federal officers? Probably not. But Harry, is there any room for the federal government to help solve local issues like this? I, I would like to think that Chicago is capable of solving it on our own. I, I realize that they're talking about three to 400 people coming downtown again this weekend with really no purpose other than to, you know, uh, mix it up. And the story about the Uber driver who was attacked and, and, uh, they tried pulling him out of his car and he had to go the wrong way down a one-way street and they, they, they smashing his windows and a pitchfork is going through the back window. That's insanity. We live in Chicago. You know, how, how could this be going on here? This is not, you know, this is not like some uh, Francis Ford Coppola movie. Martin Scorsese is not directing this. This is what's happening in our lives. It, you know, there's hey, Harry, nothing happens. Nothing happens. Like there are no repercussions for people doing that. Right. And, but people are people people don't like have a, a you know, a, a passion to come down because they believe in something. They're just coming down because, hey, what are you going to do this weekend? Let's hey, let's go down and mix it up. You know, let's let's cause trouble. That's insane. Lauren, what are your thoughts on lawsuits like this? Obviously, there's constitutionality issues and uh, separation between state and federal government. But what are your thoughts generally on sending in these these troops, to, uh, you know, quell violence in Portland or Chicago? Yeah, I mean, it's completely terrifying. It's, it's literally terrifying. There is absolutely, even if there may be some justification from a behavioral standpoint that you look at this and say there might be some appeal to some federal assistance, there's no legal basis for sending in essentially federal troops here. I mean, there is no, this is not on federal land. There is no federal crime that's being committed. There are no search warrants being issued or probable cause being identified, and nor has martial law been, been declared. 
So there's absolutely no jurisdiction for these federal officers to be there in the first place, which is hugely problematic, which is why I think that the lawsuit is absolutely justified. Now, the pragmatic concern, though, the lawsuit is going to take forever. It's not going to do any good. And I appreciate that Mayor Lightfoot has stepped up and said, we will not allow federal troops, essentially, or federal police officers into our city to dole out their own version of martial law. But the question is, how do you stop it? Especially when it's unmarked vehicles and people in plain clothes that are essentially kidnapping people off the streets. That's the part that's almost the most concerning is there's not a real way of stopping it. It looks like, according to my rundown, it's just it's all sunshine and rainbows on this legal grab bag today. <laughs> Holy cow! Rundown, isn't it? Our next topic. I mean, good lord! Uh, this story from Deadline, Deadline.com: the uh, sexual harassment, trafficking, retaliation lawsuit going on over at Fox News. Yeah, there's been a lawsuit filed yet again against Fox News, alleging a culture of, oh, let's see, sexual harassment, and in this case, actual. Um, uh, Rape. I mean, they're alleging that uh, some of the defendants in this case, including Sean Hannity and Ed Henry. Ed Henry was recently fired for uh, some sexual harassment, but this lawsuit actually alleges um, sexual harassment, sexual misconduct, sexual assault, and actual rape. Um, and significantly alleges not only that these individuals are involved, but that because of this uh, culture of um, you know, the, the, the culture that has pervaded Fox News for so many years that the corporation is actually liable as well. Now, uh, Roger Ailes um, has been well documented to be someone in charge of Fox News. He left the company many years ago under many allegations of impropriety. He was fired and then he, of course, died. But it's a little bit uh, not surprising because, you know, we keep hearing allegations, but very unfortunate, Tina, that we continue to hear allegations of this kind of conduct, not by, again, not by low-level staffers, not that that would make it any better, but these are some of the, you know, top-rated personalities at the network. I think Tucker Carlson is uh, the highest-rated personality on cable news right now. So, of course, they've come out, we, we should note that they've come out and uh, denied these allegations, but... Uh, very, very troubling news coming out of uh, these lawsuits or allegations coming out of these lawsuits. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And my guess is that just high level, we're just going to continue seeing these. And they're so um, case by case in terms of the facts and the allegations and how they're going to turn because it it's really based on what actually happened and what people knew and when they knew it and whether they took appropriate action um, at the right time to address the whatever harms or wrongdoings were were done. But I agree with you, Rich. And I think, you know, it, it, it's again, you know, a lot of it is in the wake of the Me Too movement. And we've seen how that has evolved over the past 18 months. Um, but I agree with you, very troubling allegations here out of a major network. And, and if it can happen there, it can happen in any business in America. And the idea that, um, you know, Tucker Carlson can, can say something and get away with it, it's, you know, it's ridiculous. These, these guys keep getting away with, with stuff like that. And, you know, it's got to be horrible. My, my daughter's a communications major at Michigan State. She would love the opportunity to, you know, someday work in, you know, television or, or you know, news in some form. 
And just the idea that there are, you know, nut jobs out there like that, that have to constantly take it back, you know, to, you know, the days of Mad Men, it's, it's, it's not fair. Lauren, you've worked in corporate America for a while. And uh, what struck me from some of the statements by um, the personalities attorneys was how tone deaf it really was. You still have some victim shaming going on. You have allegations that the relationship was consensual when, you know, these were uh, subordinates to some of these uh, defendants. And inherently, you know, you can't really have a consensual relationship, sexual relationship with someone who is subordinate to you. Uh, there was also some allegations that reading from the statement that it was the woman, one of the uh, accusers who suggested the relationship. So what strikes me, um, understanding that it's okay to fight back, you know, just because you're accused doesn't mean you're guilty, but the tone of these statements doesn't seem consistent with the era that we're currently living in. It's totally tone deaf and it's totally slimy. They, um, on one side of their mouth, say, we respect the Me Too movement, you know, believe women, but just don't believe this woman. Because this woman, it was consensual. Even though legally, it's pretty well established that she probably actually couldn't consent the same way that a minor cannot consent due to the nature, the power difference in the relationship. But we're going to put all that aside. Um, the other part that I'm totally fascinated by that I want to see what happens is the sex trafficking claim. I don't understand what it's based on. I don't know if it has any basis, but I sure want to watch and see what happens with it because that could be just from a legal nerdy um, background that could be totally fascinating. To see and especially happens. when you could, I, I just got done watching the Epstein documentary on Netflix, which was amazing. And, you know, you picture the word sex trafficking as some elaborate, you know, prostitution ring that happens somewhere in, in maybe Asia. Sex trafficking is as simple as, you know, soliciting someone for someone else. Um, and that's it. Right. And that's what that's what was going on with uh, Epstein. Um, and it's not as difficult, unfortunately, or as complicated as we might have thought. So I agree that the sex trafficking allegation is, is really interesting. And who knows? how far that goes uh, in, in, in the Fox News Corporation. The late Valerie Harper, famously from the Mary Tyler Moore show, she left this world in 2019. In her Emmy, she won four of them, Tina. Those were pretty much handed over to Julian's Auction LLC. They were up for auction, but now eh, there's, a, there's a stoppage on that right now. Yes, well, Sam, there was a TRO that was entered a few days back um, to stop the sale of those Emmys. Um, and it was based on a request by the Academy of Television Arts and Sciences that actually blocked the sale of those statuettes. Um, interesting allegations, copyright infringement, they're claiming copyright protection in the statuette, but also they're claiming that there was a policy that has been affixed to each of those, those um, statuettes when they're awarded. Um, at the Primetime Emmy Awards, and I guess that that practice started in 1978. The rationale here is that the people who actually win the awards, that it's really exclusively for them and is really emblematic of their achievement um, and, their, and their contributions to um, their artistry. And so because of that, the, the argument goes that once these people pass away, that they really don't have the right to be handing them off to somebody else because it ends up tarnishing essentially that ex exclusivity and value associated with winning that award. 
So the parties are going to be in court again today and over the next few days to figure out whether or not um, the TRO is going to stand. The auction house claims that they had spent about $15,000 getting this all teed up for the auction. And so um, they had to post, the TV Academy had to post a bond of $15,000 in the event um, Julian's is allowed to go forward with the um, with the auction. Just found this very interesting. I think all of us really love Valerie Harper. Watched her as she battled brain cancer for many years and unfortunately succumbed to the disease last August. Um, a very interesting um, legal theory of, of trying to stop the sale of her statuettes. Harry, you're a uh, expert on TV. Uh, do you remember when? Valerie, the show Valerie, which uh, was uh, with Jason, a young Jason Bateman, when she, after the first very successful season, uh, increased her salary demands and they killed her character off and called it Valerie's family and brought in Sandy Duncan, the great Sandy Duncan, to replace her. Yes, and and, and, uh, for some reason, Sandy Duncan was dressed as Peter Pan even for that show. (laughs) Uh, But, you know, um, Valerie Harper won... Like, you know, she won for Best Supporting Actress and Best Actress. And, you know, it happens in sports all the time that guys sell their championship rings. Right. William, William Refrigerator Perry ended up having to sell his. Um, I believe Randy Brown from the Bulls sold his. There's a whole long slew of people. And it's, you know, some Hall of Famers have sold their rings. And what happens is, you know, there are guys just way happy to have it and these people need the money. They need the money for their kids. Education is, you know, ridiculously expensive now. And so, you know, you can't stop them from doing it. Valerie Harper, you know, her, her family, they, they should be allowed to sell them. I think it's silly that they say we own them. Valerie Harper won them. She was, they handed her the award. Tons of people saw it. It's her award. She can do whatever she wants with. Lauren, what are your thoughts legally on that concept that Harry just said? I mean, it doesn't matter what what should be right. I mean, if the understanding when you get the award is that it's yours and you can't sell it, then shouldn't that govern? They're gonna the TV Academy is gonna have an uphill battle on this one because the the policy was implemented officially in 1978. These awards were given in 71, so they're gonna have a real hard time proving that that policy was in effect. And also, I'm not even sure, even if the policy exists, at what point are they letting the recipients know about this? At what point is there consent to this? Is there, is there sort of a contract, so to speak, between these, the individual receiving the award and the individuals giving it? And under copyright law, I'm not sure why something like what we would call the first sale doctrine wouldn't apply, which is essentially once you have sold, or here I would think given, the product away, you lose all rights to it. And whatever happens after that in terms of resale is up to the market. And so, yeah, I don't, I don't see a legal basis for restricting this. And I don't think they're going to be successful in restricting it. And I think it's a bad sign that the judge issued the bond. I think that that's a clear indication that this is probably not going to go their way. Sam, what's the best artifact you've seen up for sale in your many years in the sports world? Oh, geez. Probably something Dennis Rodman put up for sale because that guy's always looking for cash. I think he who put sold up their uh, who sold their MVP trip. Was it uh, Dr. J? Dr. J famously sold everything. He said, you know, I lived it. 
So I don't really need this stuff. But a few years ago, he put everything up for auction. And there's been a couple MVP trophies of that. That would look pretty good, like right here. Louis Gonzalez, the former Cub, he won World Series with the Diamondbacks. Louis Gonzalez um, had a famous wad of gum that he put up on eBay. <laughs> and that brought thousands of dollars. Well, wait, didn't, didn't Ditka's gum that he threw at that fan, didn't that go up for sale? Coach. Yes, I believe it. I believe it affects the same thing as uh, Christ's thorn. Mm. <laughs> and they've also, over the years, some of the boxing rings that have blood on the yeah. canvas. They cut that canvas up, frame it, and then uh, this is you know blood patch one of twenty-two. You know, right? But 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 it's there. Like the Beatles, I'm told, would stay in hotels, and the hotels would cut up the bed sheets and sell them by the square inch. You know, you could own part of the Beatles bed sheet. Beatles slept here. You know, that's different than that. Those guys are trying to make money off something that the Beatles did. That's different than if, if for whatever reason you're at a point in your life where you say, this is worth it to me to sell. So my family has the security. Well, Tina, when we win our podcast, I mean, I'm not selling it ever. I, I'm holding on to it. I'm holding on to it forever. Right. I, I can't wait for us to get that podcast. Emmy, rich after this episode is coming. This is, <laughs> this is the one we're submitting for consideration. Just make sure you read the fine print on the back. Exactly. Of the All right. Exactly. Former Blackhawks star Jeremy Roenick is back in the news, and this is after he is suing NBC, uh, talking about Trump, double standards and all that. And, of course, Jr. was on a podcast, a Barstool podcast, a few months back, and he made a lot of sexual comments and innuendo. So now he's saying that it's not his fault, and he is going after NBC. Yeah, so... <laughs> So he sued, yes, he sued um, NBC last week in New York, claiming wrongful termination and discrimination. Um, you know, he's quite the colorful character, and we'll leave it at that. But there were a couple of things that came up um, in the course of this of, of, of the pleadings and, and as part of this story. So Jeremy took a trip with his wife as well as his former colleague Catherine Tappan to Portugal and. It was in the context of that trip that he made some pretty explicit comments. Um, he also, several years ago, had wanted to um, be pretty public in his support of Trump, and he was advised by folks at NBC that essentially it, it's you know his life and he can do what he wants. But you know it was the 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 message was delivered to him pretty clearly that he was essentially doing it at his own risk. So the lawsuit claims that while he was essentially terminated back in February, he was put on suspension around Christmas time. Then he was terminated in February. He claims that while he was punished for his comments um, that were sexually explicit in nature, that the network responded differently when the NBC figure skating commentators, Tara Lipinski and Johnny Weir made comments in the context of what was called a spoof that were using vulgar terms and so forth in connection with um, another Olympic figure skater, that it seemed like NBC didn't have nearly as much of an issue with that characterization and that behavior. And so, um, you know, he really sort of uses that as one of the um, focal points of his lawsuit stating that he's the victim of double standards and that as, re as a result, he was wrongfully terminated. So, going to be interesting to see where, where this goes. Um, we obviously know this guy pretty well from his tenure with the Hawks. So It's going nowhere. I mean, I love JR, but come on. He said that Catherine Tappan looked 
uh, effing smoking, and that there was his wife did too. If that helps, yeah, uh, ass and boobs everywhere. It's great. I mean, you know, uh, you, you just made on your family crest. <laughs> yeah, that might be the new Blackhawks logo. By the way, who knows? But uh, yeah, one, one goal. Yeah, you just can't. You can't say that stuff. And uh, it's, it, the the idea that he's suing them because he's straight. It's, you know, it, it, it's just crazy. I mean, it, it, it's insane. And, you know, hockey players more than any other sport are very fan friendly. Maybe it's because they get paid the least amount. But hockey players tend to be great guys and they're very much there for the community. And, you know, they, they're themselves. They, they don't feel like there's a wall. They can just be themselves. And Ronick kind of, you know, I worked for ESPN for 15 years, owned by the Mops. And they used to say, you know, when in doubt, leave it out. Just don't even even go in that direction. And JR should have stopped himself. He didn't have that little voice in the back of his head. And, you know, the Patrick Sharp comments, you know, he he even commented about how, you know, he would have trouble turning down Patrick Sharp. Every guy in Chicago laughed at that, you know, but that's offensive to a bunch of people. Well, I'll just say that Sam and Harry, you guys are veterans of the Chicago sports scene. And before the era of podcasts and the internet and YouTube and Twitter, the things that you heard that uh, are a thousand times worse than what Ronick said would uh, fill the court dockets for a hundred years, probably. Enough said on that. Lauren, uh, what do you think of the merits of JR's response here? Lauren has has pushed away from the computer. Did you notice she took like a step back? Just uh, to that that hamper of laundry, Lauren. Just be careful. Yeah, I know. I'm I'm no professional over here. I home office in my master bedroom. So. Hi, does Jr. have a case here? That, does Jr. have a case that he's actually the victim here? Come on. He does not. Look, we live <laughs> in a cancel culture. You know, like it or not, for better or worse, um, the reality is employment in the United States is at will. Non-governmental entities can fire a person for good, bad, or no reason at all. They can fire them for saying something that's vulgar or something that simply doesn't align with the brand, there's no claim here. Two topics to go. I want to intro this next one with a story. So I had a Super Bowl party this year back when we could do those things. Um, Can't do those things anymore, I guess, without wearing masks. But anyways, after the game was over, one of my buddies said, hey, you got to check this out. And he turns the TV on, and there's this tattooed hillbilly rolling around with a bunch of tigers telling everybody how cool he is. Now, I I didn't know. Don't insult Harry that way. I didn't make it past episode one. I refused because that guy is an idiot. But Tina, apparently now the Tiger King is facing a lawsuit. Yeah. So Hollywood Weekly magazine has sued Netflix, CBS Studios um, over the Tiger King. Um, Long story short, Hollywood Weekly magazine claims that a number of years ago that they coined the phrase Tiger King in connection with their characterization and their programming about um, our our friendly neighborhood zoo operator who's now in jail. And so um, what they're claiming is trademark infringement, that the Netflix folks, when they um, started airing the series, that they misappropriated the name and used it in conjunction with their series. And what Hollywood Weekly Magazine is saying is that they're now being harmed because of the um, taint associated with the Netflix program and claiming that 
they're actually having issues with folks like their advertisers saying that, you know, asking when they started tying themselves to tawdry programs such as the Netflix Tiger King. So um, this is what I spend my life doing is dealing with trademark and other intellectual property infringements. Um, given how much we love the Tiger King on the show, thought it might be an interesting story to talk about. I hate the Tiger King on the show or any show. I like Sam. I actually didn't even get through the first one. I, I just I know that I don't like watching shows with people who are. I'll just say this kindly: have uh, not that much, not great grooming habits and and not a lot of teeth. Not to say I'm like elitist, but I, I just I know I would hate that show, and I'm glad that at least is providing us with some legal content. You know, Jeremy Roenick claims that uh, he would not be in jail if he were known <laughs> as the Tiger Queen. That's right. <laughs> Laura, now what are, you, what are your thoughts on the merits, legal merits of this situation? I mean, Tina's going to know better than, than I will, although um, IP is my area as well. But, you know, I, I don't know that you can claim state common law trademark protection over a nickname. I mean, they didn't actually trademark this at the federal level until I think I saw it was July 2nd or apply for it anyway. I don't even think the trademark issued. I sincerely doubt that it will issue as a valid trademark anyway. And I, I don't think you can trademark a nickname in this way. Well, I mean, the key question is, was it really ever used as a trademark, right? I mean, they claim that they did have trademark rights. And even though they only filed recently, they are claiming common law rights associated with their series and, you know, their discussions with regard to this guy. Um, but I agree with you. I think the key question is, was, was there ever use of a trademark such that they even have enforceable rights here for trademark infringement? Sam, any truth to the rumor that the Washington Football Club is going to be renamed the uh, uh, Tiger Kings? No. Next. Not Next topic. Final topic. <laughs> Bring it all home. This is a, a very ticky-tack story from the ABA Journal, and I guess it's the lightest story of our outstanding grab bag today. Uh, U.S. Supreme Court Justice Sonia Sotomayor said something in one of the cases, and a law professor has written in saying that she doesn't know what she's talking about, blah, blah, blah. I don't know. I don't see the problem, Rich, but I guess some people do. Well, I don't know. It's only the Supreme Court of the United States, so you would hope that, uh, you know, grammar and syntax is important. I'm known in my uh, uh, legal dealings as a bit of a stickler for uh, grammar and, and English. And uh, my, my attorneys that work with me will tell you that sometimes to a fault, you know, I, I, I'm really a stickler for that kind of stuff. Even though I write and speak in uh, Canadian English rather than what you people use up uh, d down here in the United States. But yeah, you in people. a dissent, Justice Sotomayor, who we referenced earlier in our earlier discussion, wrote the following term. She said um, that little if nothing appears left of the statutory exemptions after today's constitutional broadside. So the professor that you mentioned, Sam, uh, Regent University law professor James Duane wrote the justice and said, hey, uh, you're wrong in use of that phrase. You obviously meant uh, to use a different phrase. You, you meant little or nothing or little if anything, not the term that you use, which little if nothing. He said... That makes no sense at all. And this is not the first time this professor has called out Supreme Court decisions as using phrases that are not 
uh, grammatically correct or proper English. He has done so before and actually was successful in correcting the Supreme Court record on a couple of occasions. So uh, we're going to try to get this professor on for our next show because I'm fascinated, not just that, you know, he catches these things, which are, you know, fairly easy to catch, but that he has the cojones <laughs> right to Supreme Court Justice Sotomayor and correct her. Um, and it brought to mind a couple of uh, other misused terms. I'm going to wait until the end to bring up. But Tina, you write a lot for a living. I know that, you know, you like to write in a very grammatically correct way. I can't wait to send a letter in the inside out. I can't wait. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, no, I mean, I find, I find this whole thing fascinating and um, I wonder why he feels the need to correct Supreme Court justices. I mean, at the end of the day, everybody sort of knows what she was saying. And so why don't we just leave well enough alone? Ah, Go on and okay. go on life. An opponent to him. Laura, what are your thoughts on this? Would oh. you, what if, what, what if an attorney that you've trained or worked with it wrote you a, a brief containing the term little if nothing? I mean, I'd be correcting it. And there you go. You work, for, you work for a federal judge. Those judges are uh, sticklers for that kind of thing. Well, and some clerk is probably getting chewed out about that opinion, Sotomayor's opinion. And by the way, the professor didn't write the letter to her. The professor the wrote it. To, to Chief Justice Roberts, wrote it to her boss. Right. So look, if this by is the way, the ultimate example of mansplaining, talking about me too. Yeah, I mean, that's the part of it that rubs me a little bit the wrong way. Let's hope that this wasn't, you know, trying to stick it to a powerful woman. Let's let's assume that that's not what it is. Assuming that it's not that, this is my favorite thing. I just I I am such a grammar nerd that. I love holding the Supreme Court to that standard and that somebody did have the audacity to do so because we really should hold them to a higher standard and our writing in general should be held to a high, higher standard. My favorite part about his letter was that he actually left open the possibility that she was attempting to craft a new phrase. And it reminded <laughs> me, and then you know went through why that's not possible because it makes no sense, but it reminded me my CEO's favorite phrase when something is, you know, we're making things more difficult than we should, some easy thing. So he likes to say, it's not rocket surgery, which is my favorite <laughs> kind of, you know, mismatched coined phrase, which makes a, a lot one. of sense. Uh, but this was not that. <laughs> <laughs> Harry, my least favorite one that's misused is... Uh, Sooner than later. You know, when people are meaning to say sooner, it's only one extra word. How about just saying the proper word, a proper te a term, which is sooner rather than later? A lot of it comes from music, comes from bands. A band will have a hit with sooner than later, and so that goes into our uh, vocabulary. My mother was troubled when I found Springsteen that I stopped using G. You know, it was growing with an apostrophe instead of growing. <laughs> And she told me I had a real issue with that and it would come back to haunt me. And then mom went off with Roger Ailes. I never saw her again. <laughs> Rich, I think I know you. You had a list of phrases. I know what's on that list. I can give you probably the give top me, give of that your, list. Give me yours. Well, my favorite one is for all intensive purposes. Yes, that's at the top of the list. Is it really? <laughs> it, sound, like it sounds like intensive would make sense. Those are the ones that are hardest when the misused term sounds right. But yeah, it's not intensive. It's not for all intensive purposes. It's intensive and purposes. 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 Seriously, is it uncharted waters or unchartered waters? 
Unchartered. 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 Lauren, do you have any other favorites? How about well, Fall? I was, just, I was reminded. Have you heard this one? Uh, yeah. Yeah, I've heard that one before. I was actually reminded of um, a fast food company commercial and candidate. I can't remember which company now. When I was a kid, my mom was so perturbed by it. She was a, she is an English major, has a degree in English. So she's a, a grammar nerd as well. And it would say each bite more delectable than the next. And so she was like, so it's getting worse and worse and worse as you go. <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> How about I feel? How about I couldn't care less versus I could care less? That one drives me nuts. Well, Harry, you mentioned music. There's some famous, uh, uh, you know, lyrics and uh, terms in music that have always been misinterpreted. Can anyone think of some good ones? Well, the, I, I know that I know that uh, a girl used to say, uh, the Rolling Stone song "Beast of Burden." A girl used to say um, "Pizza Burning." <laughs> I'll never be your pizza burning. How about uh, it doesn't make a difference if we're naked or not? That's one of the uh, that's one of my favorites. Tina, can you think of any other songs that have been butchered over the years? Um, Blinded by the light. Mm-hmm. Bruce. <laughs> back to Springsteen. Yeah, it's always coming back to Springsteen. Well, Springsteen. who was it that did? Who did that? What what band did it that changed that lyric? Man, man for man. Manfred Mann, that's right. Bruce, who didn't have a hit with it, was horrified that Manfred Mann had a top single with that song once they changed it from Deuce to to what they went with. It was revved up like a deuce in the original script. It's a reference to a car. Right. Yeah. And they changed um, it to something that I'm not sure we're allowed to say on Legal Face. (laughs) Well, we talked earlier about the Clive Davis documentary. I'm watching it, and he read. There's a segment in that documentary where he reads literally the lyrics to "Blinded by the Light." Now that you mention it, as a promotional video, and he says "deuce," but these subtitles on the documentary say "goose." It's not goose. It's not. Goose is not writing deuce. about a goose. It's deuce. It's clearly deuce. And, yes. and, and Bruce says that, like, back in those days, he was just trying to get as many rhymes in as possible. Right. Right. Yeah. You could also bring up the entire song Bohemian Rhapsody by Queen. Nobody oh, yeah. knows. I don't think anybody oh. to this day knows what they're saying in that song. Right. And I don't know if they, they even know Sam. Oh. Or uh, the last one I'll leave you with, not that this is misinterpreted, but no one knows what it means, is uh, the pompous of love. Harry, does anyone know what a pompadus means? I heard I heard Steve Miller is a real pompadus if you meet him in person. <laughs> it's one of my favorites. Well, supposedly we're out of time, everyone. So uh, we will say, for all intents and purposes, we will be back in two weeks. Harry, go ahead, take us out with your I, final I, thought. I, 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 Tina, there's the Kentucky Derby this year is going to be the first Saturday in September, and there's a long shot horse who won the Ohio Derby named Dean Martini. Oh, so nice. Make sure you bet Dean Martini. I will. Thank you for the scoop. I'm going to log in right now and bet him. Thank you, Harry Tynowitz. Thank you, Lauren Schwartz. Thank you, everybody, for listening. We'll talk to you next time. It's Christina Martini and Rich Linkoff. You know what time it is. Welcome to Legal Face Off. Two lawyers trading jab for jab. So hit them up with any questions you have. WGN Radio, we blowing up your stereo. Got a question? Just pick up the phone and they'll let you know. Covering sports, Hollywood, and don't forget.